Well, I'm just back from a trip and I had a chance to be working on site with a client and I want to just sort of describe this picture for you. Okay? Let's hear it. After the work, the meetings, so forth is done, I take a little walk, stretch my legs. And I look ahead and I see this skid steer coming towards me. That's like a, a machine that's kind of like a forklift, but it has maybe a tractor bucket, for example, in front. And that bucket was filled with dirt. And it was driving towards me on this little path, pretty quick with a load. And I was a little bit confused because I saw two heads staring back at me. A man was driving it, and as it got closer, it became clear that there was a three-year-old little boy sitting in his lap with a helmet on <laughs> as co-pilot. I stepped aside, they drove past, seemed like they knew what they were doing, and it wasn't much longer before I heard another sound. Another skid steer was approaching from a different direction, and I wasn't too surprised when as I stepped aside in the path for that skid steer to run past me, there was a man driving and a five-year-old little girl with pigtails <laughs> sitting in his lap. So that's just one clue as to the, the fact that this is a not normal workplace environment. Welcome to the Easier Business Podcast. I'm co-host Abigail Pittman, the Gen Z daughter and colleague of a Gen X father and veteran e-commerce entrepreneur in Austin, Texas. And that's me, Patrick Pittman. If you're wanting less grind, more flow, or you wonder about finding your groove or work, maybe you're tired of playing poker with your customers, or maybe you're like me, early on in your career and wishing old command and control models were evolving faster towards something that would just feel easier and better for everyone. And welcome. We want to learn about stuff like that too. Join us. Now, here, you've been working in my company for a long time, but we never had heavy equipment, did we? No. No dump trucks or skid steers or chainsaws here. Yeah, so remember that farmers conference I went to? And we were talking about email marketing and e commerce and so forth? Yeah, we were a speaker there a few months ago. That's where I met a guy who runs a company, and he's one of those guys that has three or four. So he's in a variety of businesses, and one of them has an e-commerce need, which is in the nature of the work that we're doing. And they're in an agricultural kind of product. And it turns out that they make and sell and package and ship up and service their e-commerce Shopify website and their Amazon direct store from an intentional Christian agricultural community. Which is to say, they are kind of like the Amish. But then again, not. Amazon, Shopify. <laughs> I came a little bit early and was able to stop uh, the night before for a farm dinner where I was waiting around with, as it turned out, about 1,200 other people who were, you know, getting ready for this sort of end of the harvest dinner. And we were encouraged to go through the line and, you know, make our payment. To get 1,200 guests? 1,200 people, right? 
They had a big barn that had all the, the corn, cheese grits, and chicken, and sweet potato rolls, and so forth, inside this barn. And you had to walk around the corner and uh, pay and proceed. So I did so amongst the crowd. And as I approached, there was a young woman in a very conservative long dress with a little mobile phone and a square or a toast mobile credit card processor. And she swiped my card and I walked through. I was one of, well, let's just say that 1,200 person crowd came through and paid and was served in her in about 26 minutes. Which is very impressive. Extraordinarily. I mean, this comes from me where I've been, <laughs> I've had work in events and weddings where you're sending like 120 guests to a buffet and it will take like 45 minutes to get yeah. them all through. So, incredibly impressive. We're recording this less than a mile from the most high-volume, successful Chick-fil-A in America. We're in Austin, Texas, and not far from us is the best, highest-performing, most efficient. They will serve more lunches in the 12 o'clock noon hour than any other Chick-fil-A in America. It's honestly really impressive when you go through it. Yeah. efficient. I think if I, remember, if I remember correctly, the record is about 364 meals through the drive-thru. In an hour. Yeah. But now, of course, they're serving different kinds of food. But this farm community was just all serving a one-size-fits-all. But nonetheless, all I'm saying is that, hey, it was an organization task and a technology adoption method that isn't Amish. It's just an interesting blend of the old and the new. Yeah. There are horse-powered... Uh, farming you know, animals on the one side and then mobile square car it's processors on the other. As I've gone through this project, there is a curious desire to be more intelligent in applying technology but not a priority, not necessarily on human or labor-saving efficiency. So, yeah, we want to do things smarter, better, faster. There are some things we want to expedite. A lot of our work is involved in putting in place new systems. They have a big wholesale business. They want to move more into the retail, direct-to-consumer. So that's kind of the nature of our work in our e-business pros. But there is, interestingly, not a prioritization on eliminating people's job, so to speak, with technology. And it's curious because the work is, for its own sake, valuable. There is a desire to have people in this community grow up as children and into adulthood to do the work, to have jobs that they can work on that are operated within the community. And so part of the scene of those skid steers driving past with the kids in the lap is there's a desire for parents to be working alongside their children, not to be shoved off into some holding pen for the day while the parents go off and come back tired in the evening. There's a quality of involving the kids in the work at all age levels, and there's also an understanding that the work itself has this meaning to it, has a sense of significance. It was even explained to me that the word work and the word worship have a common origin in the sense that there is a practice, almost a devotional quality, 
to the work and doing it in the way that's meant to be done. Do you know the etymology of the word work? Well, gosh, we could add some links in the show notes to how those two are tied together. But I think it's, it's just to say that when we talk about employee engagement, we talk about leading teams and making the business easier and finding ways to develop that sense of leadership around people, there's got to be this tying it back to meaning, right? Mm-hmm. As compared to just efficiency or just profit. Now, this intentional community has all the pressures of profit that anyone else does. There's no getting around the fact that shipping costs, they eat up a lot of their profits in the e-commerce business. So that's a real constraint. But there's something about how they're motivated that doesn't make profit more important than relationship. And that's in terms of the people who are working together in the business as well as the kids who haven't been hanging around. It's quite an interesting environment in which to be implementing labor-saving, efficient systems and technology. Yeah. Not our usual client. <laughs> in a good way. There was a newsletter that linked to an article several years ago. Like, this is old that I read this. And yet, when you were telling me the story of the child on the skid steer with the parent, it brought back the memory of reading this article. What it was essentially talking about was a tribe in Africa and how they value this similarly, of engaging the children in the work, bringing them into it, and teaching them as they learn it, doing it alongside you as the parent or adult member in their community that they live in. And how they value that and it's important and it doesn't matter that they'll do it slower than you will. Like yes, it will be slower to do it with a child alongside you, whether they're three or 10, as if you were just doing it by yourself. And yet it's super important to them to have the children engaged and to be passing those skills on to them and to engage them in work where they can feel that sense of progression and learning and the value of engaging with the world around them instead of just being like, oh, you go off with mom and stay with her all day or you go and or watch somewhere else and you can do this when you're older. It's like, no, they really value bringing them in and teaching them in that way, knowing that it will be slower, knowing that they won't be able to get as much done, quote unquote, and it won't be as efficient to have them engaged in that way. And yet it's a big priority for them. And so your story of visiting this community and having them implement a similar idea of engaging the entire community of all ages in the work and not isolating it to the adults that are most skilled reminded me of that. You know, the, the farm dinner that was presented with extraordinary efficiency, it turns out was largely organized by the younger members of the community, teenagers mostly. And it was a part of a, this farm community that is a public event space. And the, the physical structures, the way it operates, what's presented there, um, is largely run by teenagers and into their early 20s. Those age groups are given this place in which to express their creative energy and their capacity. And it manifested beautifully in the way this farm dinner was, was put off. And, and again, there wasn't that fixation on trying to minimize the work 
or trying to maximize a profit. But the sake of doing it and the, the, the service of it was a real primary aim. So that has been an interesting reflection as we think about how we're trying to develop high-performance teams and how we think about leading people in, in work and making it feel better. There is this tying it back to kind of the why. You know, why are we doing this? And the sense that finding that why and holding on to the connection between people as we do that work has the ability to transform it from being just a job to being something that we actually get up and care about and want to keep doing. Another thing that it brings up too is in America it's so common when you're young to constantly be asked, well what do you want to do? What are you going to do when you grow up? What do you want to go to school study? Particularly as you enter high school and college or university years where it's just the constant question and pressure of like what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And yet one of the things I think we've lost is that idea of apprenticeships or having more ways where you can engage and work from a young age to even start to develop, one, just skills and capabilities, like these teenagers demonstrated with putting on this farm dinner, but also getting a sense of what you like versus what you don't. I mean, if all you can do for work as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old is be trusted to be a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant or to make smoothies at Juice Land, which is a very popular smoothie and juice place here in Austin, like if that's the kind of extent of the work that you can do and that's basically it, or working at Chick-fil-A or as a cashier somewhere, it's not really testing you or challenging you in a very stimulating way. It's monotonous and boring. Which is why most people, probably when they're not busy, are on their phones. Like you can be at work and be on your phone because there's nothing to do or there's no customer there to help. And yet, these teenagers and young adults at this community are being engaged in real projects where they really have to think, okay, how are we gonna serve 1,200 people dinner? How are we gonna manage payments? What kind of food sizing and portions and things, how do we think about that? How are we gonna set them and feed them? Where are they gonna sit? How do we arrange the layout of this for the best space possible? How do we deal with trash? Like all these different things and questions they're having to think about. And not only is it just engaging in a fun challenge, but also it teaches you things. And as a 20-year-old in this community, if you find out through organizing this dinner, like, actually, I really don't like being involved with the people. Like, I'm kind of shy. I don't really want to talk to people and have to, like, take payments and say hi to them every time they're walking in. Like, that's feedback for you, right? And you get that through engaging with the world. And so I feel like one of the beautiful things that this community is giving to these young adults and teenagers is a chance to test themselves and to challenge themselves and to be exposed to so many different things where they can have a much better sense of the work that they want to be doing or how they want to be like, moving forward in the world in a way that a lot of American teenagers, I feel like, don't have that chance. One of the things that it reminds me of is when young people, young children, are first developing their sense of what they can do all by myself. And there's a moment where a, a three-year-old or a two-year-old starts to say, no, I do it. Yeah. 
And I don't want your help anymore. <laughs> no, I do it. And I was driving this morning with your 15-year-old brother, driving in a sports car with a manual transmission. He's about 10 days away from getting his driver's license, his driver's test, so he has to drive with me. But he drove up and down this sort of hilly and somewhat challenging road with a manual transmission, changing the stick and the clutch back around. And he did it. I just sat there, just watched. But for the last couple of months, he's been learning. And I've had to say things like, oh, wait, down to third. No, up, to, you know, down to second. No, watch this or this. And, and I could just sit there this morning and just say nothing and just kind of watch him. And he had this sense of like, I can. I can do this. Right? It's this deeply satisfying feeling, moving the car through the gears, having the tachometer go up to 3,000, 4,000, 4,500 RPMs and the sound of that engine. Mm -hmm. But the sense of, yes, he can move through time and space with agency, and he can get there on his own. And also there's the satisfaction in learning how to drive stick shift as well, where in the beginning it kind of sucks because you're trying to figure out the timing of how do you manage the gas and the clutch and the gears and how all they play together in a moving vehicle at different speeds, moving through time and space. And so I feel like there is that sense of agency and I can do this, but you also have that clear progression and that clear sense of, oh, here's where I started. I couldn't do this. Because like, anyone can kind of drive an automatic car. I mean, there's some skill, but also it's not the same learning curve as there is with driving stick shift. And so he has that sense of accomplishing that learning curve and getting to the point where he's like, oh, I can do it. I can drive smoothly. I can be in a challenging kind of hilly, up and down, changing speeds road and still not stall. He, like, there's that combination there that makes it even more satisfying, even more that sense of, oh, I can do it. It wasn't but a week or two ago where he did the same drive. It is up and down. There's stoplights. Sometimes the stoplights turn red and you live on the hill and you're kind of working that clutch, trying to not slide back with a car behind you. Anyways, we got to where we were going and he was just sweaty and exhausted. I could just feel the exhaustion of getting there was overwhelming to him. And whereas today, it was like, no, I got this. I can do it. I can. And, and so that reminded me, here I am working in this intentional Christian community, and I've been digging into some of the words going back in the Bible in the original Aramaic. And it's prompted me to look at some of these things and... In the Aramaic, there's this translation of this, this part of this prayer of thy kingdom come, thy will be done, or the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. And you think about that in a stereotypical way of being something in the future, or something that's not here, or a place that's somewhere else. But in looking at this, there's a translation by a guy named Neil Douglas Klotz, who looks at the Aramaic and breaks it down and, and describes this root word of kingdom being uta, M-A-L-K-U-T-A in the Aramaic, similar to the Arabic malik or the Hebrew of malek. And what it really is describing, if I can just sort of frame this, is it's a sense of I can-ness. It's not so much an association with kingdom or kings or even the feminine translation of a queen. Instead, it's this capacity of a leader who demonstrates the quality of heart and mind revealed by the roots of the word, which is this sort of fiery focus centered in the personal heart and a vision of what to do or where to go with the combined energy 
of what's needed to accomplish it. Let me say that again. The root of the words are a fiery vision focused through a personal center, the heart. And this vision of where to go or what to do is combined with the energy needed to accomplish it. So it's something very much within you, but even in the root of the word back in this time, there wasn't a real clear distinction between within or without. It was more of like this around and among sense of it. And so the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in some ways confuses us with that language by instead not really affirming as clearly as it might otherwise say, it's this quality that pervades of sovereignty from the Malik in the Arabic. It's a sense of I can do it, of I can accomplish it. And that's what you're looking for in a leader and that's where the word comes from. It's the capacity to both imagine, to have the vision, and then have the energy to follow through. So whether it's my 15-year-old having the sense of driving through a challenging road with a manual transmission and his sense of agency that, yes, he can do it, or it's here similarly aged teenagers putting on a dinner for 1200 and the sense of agency and, and confidence that comes from that. These are all qualities of leadership that we see in companies and the work that we do. And I had a, a, dif a difficult conversation recently, one of the projects we're working on, where there's an uncertainty about making a shift in the business. There's a sense that it's like there's a hard pending decision and it's uncertain whether whether the leader can do it. I mean, it's, it's been some of the dilemma for a long enough time, I want to say months, where the oomph or the, the confidence or the clarity to really take that next step There's that quality that the leader has being able to imagine what ought to be done. And a lot of times we come in as a consultant for help them with the ideas, right? We do the analysis. We're, we have experience in this field. And so we come in and help bolster their confidence to make a hard decision and, and do something differently. Mm -hmm. But this is an interesting case where I'm seeing it's even our encouragement as expert consultants isn't quite enough there can be a certain passivity, an uncertainty what to do. And the team starts to look around and think, gosh, does this, this leader have, have what it takes, right, to be able to, to make a commitment one way or the other? But instead, it's kind of one this middle ground. We've been there for a while. Mm -hmm. One thing that reminds me of this idea of are you a visionary or are you an executor? And they, the way it's described is almost painted like you're either or. It's the entrepreneurial operating system. Thank you. Yeah, EOS. Okay. Yeah, you're right. So it's painted as this two separate ends. You're either a visionary or either an execution ex executor. And I think one of the things that's challenging about that is to be a good leader, you have to employ and utilize both. Because if you focus too much on the executing, you don't necessarily have the vision of where you're going. And if you focus too much on the vision of where you're going, can have a hard time executing. And so that blending together of the vision and the execution is part of what's challenging, so you have to balance both of them. But when a leader can do that really well and, and utilize both sides of those and the values and benefits of both, there can be a lot of success there, not as monetarily speaking, but it's a challenge to, to hold that tension between the two and be able to lean on both sides and use both of them. Sometimes those models are useful because it helps people simplify things and they can kind of say, oh, 
integrator visionary. It gives them sort of this choice, a binary that tries to simplify what otherwise can feel overwhelming. Yeah. But it does lose a lot of subtlety. And I was in a, I want to say a bookstore, but no, I was in a Goodwill thrift store yesterday with my favorite wife and your mother, who is a big fan. (laughs) The one and only. There's not multiple. There's not a harem around. (laughs) So we're in the good. We'll just leave it there. Okay. So you're in Goodwill. (laughs) So I come across this book yesterday, and it's one of those books that I just have this preconceived idea that it probably could be a magazine article, but it's turned into a book. And and there's all kinds of books on leadership that you could read if you wanted to. This one's published by the Harvard University Press, and so has a certain cachet or expectation. About ten, about ten years old. It's called Own the Room by Jen Sue and Magnin Wilkins, and it tries to simplify the dilemma of how to step forward in a leader. And if you go back to that word Malkut of the the I can sense and also the combination of the vision and the energy to see it through. It, kind of like EOS, breaks things down to this simple binary, or in this case, a four-part matrix, because, you know, they're Harvard consultants and coaches, so they can't help themselves, probably. They have this four-part grid and quadrants of your presence as a leader. And on the x-axis, going from left to right, it's, it's how you express your voice for others on others' behalf. And on the y-axis going up from the bottom to the top, it's your voice expressed for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so your voice for self can be the kind of thing that as a young person without a lot of experience, it's kind of where you're focused on, like trying to get stuff done, trying to advocate for yourself, right? And as you maybe learning to. Yeah. And maybe as you as you grow older and you have more capacity, you're managing other people, you start to come give a voice for others. But it could also just be temperamentally or personality type, you, you lean towards one or the other either way. Yeah. And what that ends up in, if you imagine sort of a four part uh, a matrix, is on the bottom left, without a lot of voice for yourself and without a lot of voice for others, it looks like you're kind of being passive. As you move along the x axis to the right, as you voice for others, you kind of become more like a supportive, you know, a supportive voice. If you stay along the y-axis, moving from the bottom to the top, you move, as far as you're asking for yourself, it starts to give sort of a driving quality to your leadership. You're driving, you're an insistent, there's a certain, it can be selfish, perceived, or it can be as, I'm not abrasive. So the starting point is like the weaker side, and then as you either move the right on the x-axis or move up on the y-axis, it's getting stronger. Yeah. So it's weak to stronger. So. Okay. And like any good consultant's chart, in the top right corner is where you want to be. That's the ideal. That's the signature voice. Okay. That's what they call it. The signature voice as far as the presence as a leader, someone who can develop that capacity. So that's the strength of both voice for self and voice for others? Yeah. It's the sort of perfect blending of the two of those. Okay. And it's in some ways a gross simplification but it's a way of framing how you're trying to seek this balance of bringing in others' considerations and also having your own vision and capacity to advocate and make the case for what needs to be done. It's a, just an interesting challenge as you think about 
where you feel stuck or the lack of ability to step forward and make the big decision. The idea of I can, what it, that, back to that prayer of thy kingdom come, what it's actually saying is I really want your, your meaning God's, I canness to come through me. Mm. As compared to, say, doing it all on my own. In this project we're working on with this client, it's the first time there's this very clear awareness or reference to what's being done isn't so much for the purpose of maximizing profit. There's a missionary quality to it, but the mission is, is really more a cultivation of relationship among people that is sort of the mission and less about it's Build the business as big as it can yeah. and as fast as you can. Right. And so then there's this acknowledgement of not necessarily making the decision on your own or having to sort of oomph up the extra oomph to do it and push through on your own. There's a little bit of a relaxation into thy kingdom come as expressed as please, please let your, the divine's, I canness come through me. And it changes up the whole feel of a business. And it also, I think, can reduce the pressure that builds on a leader who's like, in another case we're seeing, stuck and not quite able to really step forward and commit to a hard decision. they'd be on that quadrant then? Well, I don't know. This quadrant does simplify things in a way that's probably... The Own the Room book makes the case for what they call the ACE method of conditioning. And ACE is an acronym because it sounds good and it's memorable. A is for assumptions. What are the assumptions that you bring into a situation about what people think, what you think, what you think about yourself? Assumptions. You will be reflect upon those. Be aware of them. And secondly, the C is communication skills. How you express yourself. How can you make a case and advocate clearly? And then E for the ACE, A-C-E. E is for your energy. Which is another way of saying the physical presence that you bring as things that are not so verbal, like nonverbal cues. And your composure or your expressiveness, that's sort of the energy quality. And what the book essentially provides you is this conditioning program as if you're going to get in shape. With but for the, your... With, you get in shape around your assumption, your communication skills, and your energy so that you can develop your signature voice and presence as a leader. And it's described in such a way that is... It uses words like... These are the three levers that you can pull as a leader to do this. These are the conditioning exercises you can do. These are the behaviors that you can start to adopt. Interesting. <laughs> trying to, it feels like they're trying to gamify something that can't quite be gamified. Well, I think what it is is it's, it's sort of falling back on a mechanistic language. Yeah. That, that we, are, we are machines that you can sort of... I mean, think about this. When's the last time anyone in a sort of a typical office 
setting or management or something ever pulled a lever. Yeah, very long time. Oh, my friend. Unless you're in a specific industry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my friend Adam does that every day. He works in a sheet metal fabrication factory, and he's pulling all kinds of levers. But how rare. The language is still there. We're grasping for machine kind of analogies to how we tap into something that's very emotional, psychological, and, well, and spiritually. Well, as humans, we're, we're, we're messy. We're not predictable. It's not an if-then conditional programming statement that's always going to run the same way. So if you pull this lever that this book is describing, it doesn't mean that th that person is going to give you the exact same outcome that the book describes. And so I feel like that's why... I, find that language slightly off-putting because it it implies that there's a reliability or almost like promised results like here's the lever do this and you'll get that but humans don't work that way we're not predictable I mean we're predictable in some ways but it's, it's simplistic it's a management method that has a lot of merit to it to the extent that it has been shown to be effective across many different companies and lots of people have gone through this program and the Own the Room idea is a well-respected book as far as the, the method is trying to show. Yeah, I think the language, just the mechanistic language could be improved upon now. <laughs> the core message of what they're saying can have merit. If the book is underlying this question of how do we cultivate presence as a leader, I think a lot of it comes from this underlying sense of, I mean, you've liked Simon Sinek and his Start With Why. Mm -hmm. Right? Where, why is it that we're, we're doing the things that we're doing? And in this project with this intentional Christian agricultural community, there is a why underlying that, which has been quite of a contrast to see as we work through their business fundamentals and help them reflect upon what it is they can do to make things better. It's very present, too. Like They're very aware of it and very mindful of maintaining that why close to their work that they're doing. And they get frustrated like anybody else, and they have dilemmas and challenges and things don't work sometimes. All that stuff is there too. Mm-hmm, of course. So it, it does prompt me as I think about where I have tried in my own business to try and make, say, hard decisions or things I've been stuck on. Where do I turn when I feel like that sense of I can-ness is a little bit lacking? And how do I bring it into the present with this sense of not as much effort. If this is the easier business podcast, where does it feel easier? Part of that is, is to rest in the sense of something greater and to be able to move forward as a leader as you take on more stress, more responsibility, have harder and bigger decisions. We can get constricted and frozen when we start to feel like it's all on our shoulders. And to the extent that we can start to let that rest a little bit, and draw forth that Malkut or Malik quality into our decision making as leaders, it can just make it a lot easier. That reminds me, I'm going to interrupt you there because that reminds me of something that I was reading. This is from the Farnham Street newsletter, which I believe I mentioned in our last episode. I'm a big Your fan. Your favorite. I'm actually, yeah, I'm a big fan of them. I find their, their writing in the newsletter and the ideas discussed consistently really high quality and always challenge or think about things in a new interesting way. So this particular one was talking about decision making. So here we go. Make more decisions with less confidence but in significantly less time. 
and just recognize that in most cases, you can course correct and treat fast decisions as a kind of asset and capability in their own right. It's quite striking to me how some of the organizations that I hold in the highest regard tend to do this. The second thing is to not treat all decisions uniformly. I think the most obvious axes to break them down on are a degree of reversibility and magnitude, those ones you do really want to deliberate over and try to get right. And this right here is kind of the core thing that I, I thought about when you were talking. And then there's a second thing that I'll read, which is again about decisions, talking about reversible and irreversible decisions. Reversible decisions are doors that open both ways. Irreversible decisions are doors that allow passage in only one direction. If you walk through, you're stuck there. Most decisions are the former and can be reversed, even though we can never recover the invested time and resources. So I bring that up because if we're talking about leaders that are in challenging, like you have a problem, you're trying to decide what to do, and you're feeling stuck. God, I don't really have the sense of, I can't, I don't know what to do, I don't feel fully capable to make this right decision here. Keeping that idea in mind of, is it a one-way door or a two-way door? One. But also, is this a decision that I can start down and course correct? Like maybe we'll start in one direction, and if it turns out it's not quite the right step to take, we can take two steps to the left and get in a better, more, better path to take for this problem. And so I feel like those two kind of ideas can help when you're making decisions and feeling that kind of challenge of, I don't know if I can do this. Having those kind of ideas in mind, I feel like can help with that. It's something this episode is really about decision making and where we go to feel like we can, or what we look to, or how we develop our capacity around making decisions. Yeah, I guess so, leadership and decision making. I think leadership is also a reflection of gaining a certain mastery, right? For those who are promoted into leadership positions, it's because they've demonstrated some mastery. And what mastery looks like is moving fluidly through decisions that get progressively more difficult. I've talked about my training in jiu-jitsu, and I moved to a different school this year. But I went back to my old school over this weekend, and it was in part just for friendship's sake. Say hi to the guys. Say hi. <laughs> my teacher at that school, of course, was happy to roll with me again in jiu-jitsu. It's the roll, it's the sparring experience. And... I was able to stand with him and we were doing a number of things back and forth in an equal, equal capacity. And I found myself being successful, like keeping going with him. And it was kind of fun, it was playful, and I was feeling confident. I was demonstrating how much I've learned since I was there last. Mm -hmm. And that may have been just his humoring me for a while because what shifted at one point is the pressure he started to apply and the things he started to do I felt then more like I was falling behind. I wasn't quite catching and keeping up with the things that were happening next, right? And if you're a leader and you're dealing with pressures in the business and the dynamics that that playing itself out, you get to a point where you lose keeping up. 
So we were rolling back and forth, and I felt confident. I felt like I'd learned a lot since I'd been there last. I felt like I was showing my mastery. But as he dialed up the pressure, I started to fall farther behind to the point that his next attack, his next move, caught me, and I fell. It was bad from there. But it was like this accelerating sense of like my mastery only could handle so much quick decision making to the point that his choices and his decisions outpaced my own and I fell behind and I lost. Mm -hmm. And what that shows is in my case, in the specific realm of jujitsu, the limit of my ability. Right? And what the mastery looks like, whether it's in a business context or in a, a martial arts kind of combat context, is the flow with a sense of relaxed composure through difficult decisions. So if you're reading from that Farm Street newsletter about how to look at decision-making, and what go back to the very first part that you read. Make more decisions with less confidence, but in significantly less time. And just recognize that in most cases, you can course correct and treat fast decisions as a kind of asset and capability in their own right. So in my sort of awareness of myself in jiu-jitsu, I could play this out in the business too. My willingness to make decisions with less confidence, mm, I'm not so willing. And so another black belt instructor was telling me, he said, you know, Patrick, it looks like sometimes you're trying to do the right move too well, perfectly, in a way that makes my movements feel a little bit blocky. Like from one, step two, step three, to be mm -hmm. deliberate. Mm -hmm. And he said, the alternative is to sort of flow and to not go sort of at a 90 degree corner, but to cut the corner in a rounded, smooth movement, where it's not as clear moving from step one to step two, I just kind of cut the corner and smoothly move to step three. Mm -hmm. And that looks like flow. Jiu-Jitsu represents that kind of the ideal sense of the flow. You hear that word in yoga too, right? Yeah, you do. And, of course, you know, being in the zone. And I'm not saying all those words are you know, equivalent to each other in business, but there is something to be said about making decisions with a sense of flow. I'm not waiting for all the perfect information to be collected so you can make the perfect decision. What you read speaks to that as well. I think so. If you're a leader that's in a situation where you're having a challenge in front of you or a problem that you're trying to decide what to do and how to solve it, and you're not quite feeling like you have the I can-ness to know what to do, I feel like keeping these kind of three ideas in mind can be helpful of that. With the first being, is this a one-way door or a two-way door? Like, like, is the decision that I make here, is it completely irreversible or is it a reversible one? And then the second one being, if it is a two-way door, how can I course correct and just start the decision and get the clarity from the engagement of just starting to move through a solution to this problem and course correct as I need to. And then three, understanding or paying attention to what this pharmacy article calls the degree of the magnitude. How big of a scale is this problem trying to face and how much can I reverse from it as needed. That framework can make a decision less paralyzing. So that struck me when you were talking about this. I wanted to bring that in. Back to the example I said about someone who's kind of stuck. The dilemma and the big decision has all of those qualities. It is reversible. It is 
pretty straightforward how to course correct. So that's a useful framing of how to think about it. Now it does feel like it's significant magnitude though. So there's that quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things with low reversibility and great impact and magnitude, those ones you do want to deliberate over and try to get right. So that is an example where you do want to take the time to make a decision and don't make it so fast. And yet at the same time, at some point, you are going to have to make a decision. Remaining in that stuckness is not going to help you. So give it the time and at some point just you have to move forward. All right, it's time to hit the road and get to your soccer game. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Abby. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Easier Business Podcast. Show notes can be found on easierbusiness.com forward slash podcast. Is there something about our conversation that you want to remember? Write it down. Save the idea. Or tell a friend and see what their response is. What's something you'd like us to talk about? Would you share your feedback or questions? Send us an email to hello at easierbusiness.com. If perhaps someone shared this episode with you, consider subscribing at easierbusiness.com or with your favorite podcast app. We love Overcast, which you can find in the Apple App Store, but we're also on Spotify and more. This show is a production of eBusiness Brands and is recorded in Austin, Texas with a live studio audience including Blue Dog and Bailey Putts. Thanks to technical assistance from the ever-reliable Catherine Gamboa, it's produced by Gabriel Pittman. We hope you join us for our next episode. We don't take your precious attention for granted. Until next time, here's to making it easier. Bye for now.